Each week in this series, I've made some sort of a statement to this effect that one of my goals in this series is to deconstruct, destroy some insufficient images and ideas about God. Uh, it is not unusual at all to meet people that think that, you know, the key to the thing with God is that you need to just kind of figure out what it is that pleases him. You know, you know what, it, what is it that he wants out of you so that you can get him on your side so that he favors you, so that he blesses you, so that he won't be angry at you. And we tend to look for various appeasement uh, executions that we can do. For example, it might be just coming to a place like this every Sunday. And we say, see, God, look, I'm, I'm doing my duty. I'm here. And we come to places like this dutifully, thinking that we'll appease God. But some of us think that it's a matter of believing the right things, that if God sees, I believe the right things, that he'll be appeased with me, pleased with me. Sometimes it's, you know, lighting a candle or repeating prayers over and over again or going on a pilgrimage or giving some money. It can be all kinds of things. I've sought for years to destroy this kind of insufficient image of God because our God is a lot greater than that. He, he's much more loving. His love is more comprehensive. He actually knows what's best for us, wants what's best for us, and wants us to come to trust him enough that we will live the way he's designed us to live. And that means that he's going to touch every area of our lives like any loving parent would. And so the notion that we just kind of arbitrarily do certain religious activity, and then it just really doesn't matter what we think, what goes through our minds, uh, how we behave, that, that this isn't going to matter to God. Well, this is just nonsensical, and it's not supported in his word at all. So it's a very holistic thing. An another image that I've sought to destroy for years is this notion that God, just because he's powerful, uh, he just arbitrarily makes up commands. That is not true at all. It's not supported in his word at all. When God tells us in his word, do this, don't do that, it's because he has designed us to function in a certain way. It's because he knows this is the only way that life can work for you and work for everybody else, particularly in an eternal context. And so his commands are never arbitrary. Listen, there's no area in your life, and some of you, you're not gonna believe this. There's no area in your life that God doesn't know about and that God doesn't care about and that God doesn't know more than you do. You say, but Randy, he, he doesn't know my business, man. You, you, you know, God doesn't, he doesn't understand my, my business has to be run. Yes, he does. So his commands are based on his infinite understanding and his infinite love for us. And it's a relationship that he longs to have with us. He created us to have a relationship with us, one in which we trust him, follow him fully and freely and forever so that we can experience the blessing that actually does come when we live according to our design. All right, that's kind of the backdrop to this entire series. Now, we've looked at various things asking this question, I wonder if it's good for me. And what we've said each week since the very first message to get ourselves started thinking in this correct direction is a discovery that I've made and that we kind of all said we've all experienced. Not everything that initially seems good to me is ultimately, what does it say? Good for me. I may do some things, experiment with some things. They're initially fun, they're pleasurable, but I find out later on in time they actually weren't good for me. They were initially good to me, not good for me. Second part of this. 
When I live knowingly or unknowingly, I might not even know what my design is. I might not have a clue what my design is. But if I live knowingly or unknowingly in accord with my design, it is what? It's good for me. And I've given an example every week, you know, with the physical realm. You know, like, you have to breathe air. You don't have any choice of that. If you're going to live, you better breathe. You have to drink water. You have to sleep. You have to eat. You have to move. It's part of your physical design. If you do those things, it's good for you. If you don't do those things, it is not good for you. Well, the same is true when it comes to mental, emotional, relational. We have a design. And if we wonder, what is our design? You know, because if we live in according with our design, things go good for us ultimately. And if we don't, they go bad for us, whether we know what the design is or not. Well, what what is the design? Well, right in the very first book of the Bible, the 27th verse of Genesis, chapter 1, it says that God made us in his own image. Therefore, I am designed, you are designed to be a being that is like God. What do we know about God? Well, he's loving, he's unselfish, he's pure, he's righteous, he's holy, he's good. That's who you are. And if you want some evidence, let me just give you a clue. How many of us know that if you do something really selfish, really mean, really cruel, really dishonest, you tend to feel uncomfortable about it, unless your conscience has become so hardened, okay? We don't feel good about those things. On the other hand, when we do something really unselfish, really kind, really helpful to somebody else, why is it that we feel good? It's because of the way we're designed. That image is inside of us. And so the evidence is all around that we have a certain design. When we live in accord with that design, it's good for us ultimately. When we don't, it's not good for us ultimately But some things trick us because they seem good initially, but long-term, they're not good for us. So the question today we're dealing with is, I wonder if these experiences or conditions are good for me. Right now, every one of us in this room, we have a certain set of conditions that we're living under, a certain set of experiences that we're undergoing right now. And at times, we probably ask ourselves, I I wonder if this is good for me. Uh, To give you an example where I'm going with this, can, can I get you to... Are you feeling interactive today? How many are feeling a little interactive today? Okay, she is. I'm going to go with that. (laughs) So what you have to do, I'm going to recite something, and each time you have to say, not necessarily, Randy, okay? Can you do it? You're going to feel a little goofy, but we'll have fun, okay? So here we go. I get the job, the career opportunity of my dreams. Is it good for me? Yeah, I forgot my part. You did your part good. (laughs) I marry my heart's desire, my, my soulmate. Is it good for me? Huh. That job that I got, that, that dream job, I get unjustly fired. Is that good for me? That, that heartthrob, that soulmate, she commits adultery and dumps me for someone else. Is that good for me? What we're seeing is that you can't initially sometimes really tell what's good for us. Let me go further. God has built us in such a way that you and I have a God-given ability. We might even call it a responsibility. Responsibility is the ability to respond. I have the ability to respond. You have the ability to respond to any and every circumstance in life in a way that we can turn it to be good for us. God wants us to turn it to be good for us. So we're not helpless victims of circumstance, even though 
even though it may feel that way at times. So we'll, we'll, we'll unpack this a little bit more. So we have reactions. Those things that I just mentioned, you know, you, you get the job of your dreams, your normal reaction is going to be you're going to feel kind of happy. You, you get that soulmate you marry, you're going to feel kind of happy. Uh, the reaction comes from an interpretation that we have of the event. Okay, so we all have this way that we interpret things, whether they're good for us or not good for us. But sometimes our interpretation system is, is defective. Let me show you where you get your interpretation system from. Let me show you what, it, what it's built out of. Every one of us in here, every human being, has certain beliefs about life. Certain things that whether we thought through it or not, we believe are true about life. We may believe, for example, that there is a God. Okay, that might be part of our belief system about life. Uh, we may believe that that God is an impersonal force, okay? Or we may believe that that God is a, uh, a loving being as revealed in Scripture, okay? So that, that's going to form our beliefs. If I could go back. We may believe there's no God at all, that we're just here by accident. The second thing we have is expectations. Now, our expectations are formed by the way that we are treated early in life in our basic temperament. And just kind of keep that up on the board for a minute. Don't, don't take it away. Um, some of us are just born optimists. I don't know why. Some of us are born pessimists. It just is. We are born with an innate kind of a temperament, but also our expectations in life. What, what do I think life is going to be like for me? It's based on the way I experience early life. For example, let's say you're a child and you are born in a war zone. And every day of your life is very, very dangerous. And you're, you're very deprived of normal uh, daily life needs. That's going to form your expectations that the world is a bad, dangerous, difficult place. Let's say you were born in a Western country in wealth and you've got loving, nurturing parents. Your expectations are going to be, I think life's going to go well for me because you've been treated so good. So our expectations and beliefs, they kind of form together. And then there's a third part. And this is all together how we interpret things, and it's our purposes. Our purposes in life might be this. Uh, all things considered, man, all I want to do is be as happy as I can for as long as I can. That, that might be your purpose in life. Your purpose in life might be, no, I want to be exactly who God created me to be, and I want to do exactly what he created me to do. That might be your purpose in life. That's going to affect the way you interpret if something's good for you or not good for you. So interpretation and reaction to conditions, it's based on this formula, your beliefs, your expectations, and your purposes. It's a lot to take in at once, but I thought I'd at least uh, try to take some of the mystery out of it, why we react to things the way we do. And here's the deal. Our emotions often will show what we actually believe about life, what we actually expect out of life, and what our actual purposes are, the way we react to something emotionally. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll break this down a little bit more as we go. Let's look at the inside of someone whose belief system does not include God. You know, they, um, they feel like, you know, we're just here by accidents of evolution. You know, the big bang happened. Everything came from nothing for no reason. And now it's become uh, everything that was non-existent and simple became complex and, and all these nonsensical ideas that we see no basis for. But, but let's just say that that's your worldview, that you think life is just accidental. No creator. Here's what's going to look, you're going to look like inside. Your perception of life, your belief system, you're, you're going to be sense-governed. In other words, what you believe is true about life is based on your five senses, what you can see, taste, touch, hear, and smell. That's the only thing you know for sure. 
Yeah, you got a little bit of reasoning capacity, a little bit of imagination, but you can't be so sure of those things. It's your senses that you're going to get your picture of reality from. You're also time-bound. You know this. You know that you have a limited time on this planet. You know that human beings don't live past a certain time frame. You know this about yourself, and that creates the next thing. You are driven by the fear of death. This doesn't mean that you go around thinking about death every day. It just means that you know your life is here today. It could be gone at any time, and it will be gone at some time. And this forms the way we kind of interpret whatever happens in life. If you're in this case, every time something uncomfortable happens, something you don't desire, you're going to call it bad. It's bad for you because your goal in life is this, self-preservation, which means you're just going to try to live as long as you can, and self-gratification. I'm going to try to have as much fun as I can all the time. So if something shortens my life or if something brings pain or discomfort to my life, I'm going to conclude it's not good for me because my goal in life is just I'm going to live as long as I can and get all the fun that I can. That is what is the governing philosophy inside of every person you'll ever meet who excludes God from their view of reality. And so their expectations at best have to be kind of uncertain, like we said, based on their childhood experiences and maybe their, their natural temperament type and uh, their purposes in life, like I say. It's just going to be make it good as long as you can and hope that that's long. All right. But for a person that believes in God as he's revealed himself in Scripture, that internal world is very different. And so the way we interpret events should be different. And that's why I had you repeat in each of those things. Not necessarily, Randy, because if my purpose in life is the one that God reveals is my purpose in Scripture, that this is a developmental journey, that I'm first and foremost to come back to a place where I choose to trust in my Creator, Christ, and become His follower so that now He can help me develop the way I was always intended to. Then I'm to grow. I'm to become more and more Christ-like. I'm made in God's image. I'm to help with God uh, restoring that image in my soul. Well, then, then whatever causes me to be more like Christ... Well, that's ultimately good for me, even though it might initially not seem good for me. It might seem uncomfortable or inconvenient for me. So, so one that trusts in God, they, they think about things differently. They interpret things differently. All right, let me give you a couple points just to show you what I mean by, by um, what, what is my view? What is your view of reality? Because that's going to determine how you interpret events that go on in your life, conditions that you're, you're experiencing right now. So... Here's just a few points of what God says should be a part of our view of reality. And we'll kind of check ourselves off and see where we stand on those. All right. First portion of scripture. It's uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, the guy that God used to write 13 books in the New Testament. He's been following Christ for about 20 years when he writes this. He'll ultimately follow Christ for 30 and then be martyred. Uh, but, but he says this. It's a really simple statement. He says, for all of us must appear before the judgment seat of the Messiah or of Christ so that each of us may receive what he deserves for what he has done in his body, whether good or, what's the word? Worthless. So the first thing that this puts into one's view of reality is that there is life after death. This is a judgment that is based on what we did while we were in the body. Obviously, it takes place after death when we're not any longer in the body. 
And it also gives a, a different perspective to life. It says that, that life counts. It matters. It's being measured. It, it, it's being looked upon. It's going to be rewarded or it's not going to be rewarded. Whether what you did was good, it says, or whether it was worthless. When we factor in that our faithfulness or lack thereof to God, to his word, to his will, to his ways, that, that it's going to be measured, it's going to be judged well, well, that changes how I interpret my conditions and experiences. There's another verse Jesus uh, shares with us that's kind of just supportive of that first one. He says, for the Son of Man, he is using that to express himself. It's from Daniel chapter 7, showing that he was the Messiah. Uh, he says, for the Son of Man will come with his, what is the word? And this, this brings something else. Is your view of life, does it include other intelligent life in the universe? Because the Bible has said from beginning there are other intelligences in the universe that we, we have to factor in. We're not the only intelligent universes in the universe. For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will reward each person. That's that same idea of judgment, reward, according to what he has done. So does that fit into your worldview? Do you, do you view reality as, first of all, there's going to be a judgment. Everything matters. Every part of life matters. And secondly, do you include in it the return of Christ entering into society, taking control at some point, establishing his everlasting kingdom so that what we experience today will not exist. There'll be a different world where there's no more sickness, sorrow, pain, or death, or suffering. He promises that. And part of that return and the setting up of his kingdom will involve multitudes of these other entities, other intelligent life forms called angels. Does that, does that mold and shape my responses, your responses to our conditions and experiences in life? Listen to this one, and it really puts it in a whole different perspective. Here's the book of Hebrews, and it's talking about the experiences of some who had trusted in Christ, became his follower, both Old Testament and New Testament um, Old Testament, they trusted in God as he had revealed himself. New Testament, we find out that the God of the Old Testament was indeed Christ, was Jesus. But this is what some of these faithful followers went through. It says, some faced jeers. That's just being made fun of, mocked, you know, because you're, you're a God follower. Some, some faced jeers and flogging. That's getting whipped 39 times. Um, and even chains... And imprisonment. In other words, some, just because they were faithful to Christ, were thrown into jail and they were chained up. They didn't do anything to deserve it. Could you imagine that uh, you're, you're in a shopping uh, market, you know, you're buying some groceries, and all of a sudden police come running in there, they surround you, they grab you, they pull you out of there, and they charge you with having robbed a bank. And you're trying to tell them, no, I didn't rob the bank. They say, no, 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 we know. We know about description. You're the guy. We, we saw the camera picture, and it, it's you. But you're, no, it's not me. I wasn't there, but it doesn't matter. So you do 20 years, but you didn't deserve a, a bit of it. And you pray, but God doesn't get you out of it. That's what that's talking about. These people were imprisoned in chain, and they didn't deserve it, and God didn't intervene and do anything. It goes on. There were others who were, what is the word? Wait a minute. Randy, you're trying to tell me that a loving God, a loving God is going to allow one of his faithful followers, one of his children, to be tortured. You've got to be kidding me. You really believe that? That's what it says. Let me go on. There were others who were tortured 
refusing to be released. In other words, they could have gotten out if they would have just recanted and said, okay, I want nothing to do with Jesus. There were others who were tortured. Do you know the people who are tortured today in the Middle East because they're, they're followers of Jesus? Do you know the people who are decapitated today in the Middle East because they're followers of Jesus? If you don't, you need to know that. That's happening today. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better what? So part of their worldview, deciding what's good for them and what's not, they decided, you gotta, gotta get this, you gotta let this sink in. These people decided it was better for them to undergo torture when they could have been released evidently, but they decided I'm choosing to undergo torture because I'm gonna have a better resurrection. My reward in eternity, my status, my function in, et- in eternity is gonna be benefited by me choosing to undergo torture. So in other words, let me make this very clear. If you ask them, was your torture good for you? They say, yeah, my torture was good for me because it brought me a greater reward for eternity. Does that fit in to your worldview? Because it's our view that's going to affect how we interpret present day experiences and conditions. It goes on. It says the world was not worthy of them. So see, God's commending these people. They were all commended for their faith. In other words, God's saying they did it right. They, they saw things correctly, that it was good for them to stay faithful to God even though they were going through unjust sufferings. And God didn't intervene, and they didn't even want him to intervene, evidently. Does, does that factor into the way when you face conditions, I face conditions and experiences, are we thinking in these terms that if I am faithful no matter what it is, this can count in ways that I can't quite understand now for all eternity because that's what Scripture teaches. One last one to think about. Sometimes we go through situations, you know, and and we say, I I don't understand this at all. I don't don't know why God would allow me to go through this. I don't know why he's not intervening. I, I mean, I know he's got the power. I know he could do a miracle for me. He could intervene. He could change this thing instantly, but he's not And I just don't even know what's going on, you know. Maybe sometimes we have been in those circumstances. Maybe we're in one right now. Well, here's something to factor in. It's this obscure verse in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, again, writing to followers of Christ in Ephesus. It says, in order at the present time by means of the church. Now, the church is just every follower of Christ. It's, it's the ecclesia, the called out assembly, the community of followers of Jesus. You, physically, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of the church, his body. Okay, it's not the building. The building is just where the church meets. He says, in order that the present time, by means of the church, the who, who, angelic rulers and powers in the heavenly world, here we have it again, intelligent beings, other intelligent beings in the universe, angelic rulers, we're, we're talking about governments, we're talking about, you know, uh, sophisticated civilizations of these beings, angelic rulers and powers in the heavenly world might do what? learn of his, God's wisdom in all its different forms. But wait a minute, how are they learning of God's wisdom in all of its different forms? By means of the, what does it say? Church. You mean to tell me, Randy, that, that, that these angelic civilizations and rulers are observing what is going on on planet Earth, and particularly they are observing those that are followers of Christ, and that they are learning things They are learning things that are going to affect them for all eternity based on my or your faithfulness or unfaithfulness as the church, the followers of Christ. Yes. Yes, that's what Scripture is teaching. 
So sometimes we don't exactly understand something. We can't see any reason for it. But maybe the reason is is that, that we're going through a testing so that these other angelic entities that God also loves can learn something through our faithfulness or lack thereof. So these are just some things that that should be a part of our worldview. If they're not a part of our worldview, we're not going to be able to answer the question, is this good for me correctly? Because we're we're thinking too narrow. We have to think real wide that all these things are a part of reality from God's perspective. There's a guy named Ronald uh, Rohazer, and uh, he wrote a book, and and he's just got an interesting quote in it. The book is called Sacred Fire. He said, crises of every kind will find us. But these crises enter our lives not just as challenges to us to retain our balance and stability, but as invitations to stretch our hearts and our minds. Every crisis includes within itself an invitation for us to move from being good people to becoming what kind of people? It's a lot of good people. It's not many great people. And every one of us who have returned to our God in trust, that have put our faith in Christ and become his followers. God wants us. You have the ability. I have the ability to become not just good people, but great people, people that love the way God loves, people that that sacrifice and do things that will have eternal repercussions in a beneficial way. So what looks like it might not be good for us, a crisis, according to Ronald Rollheiser, according to Scripture, might actually be opportunities for what ultimately is good for us. It might stretch us. It might change us. It it, it might catalyze some growth in our lives in ways that we've been stuck, is what it's saying. But but that's only going to seem good to you if your goal in life is to grow. I mean, if the most important thing in your life is just to live as long as you can, as happy as you can, as trouble-free as you can, you're going to call what, might, what God's sight might be good for you, you're going to call it bad for you. You're going to gripe and grumble and complain. You're going to say, God, why are you doing this to me? I'm angry at you. Why, why aren't you making my life easier and sweeter? You, you know I'm not happy, God. Or we say, no, 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 I, I, I want to become who you want me to become. That's my first and foremost goal. I want to be the Christ-like person you created me to be, and I want to do those unique things you've called me to do that's what's most important to me then sometimes what rocks our boat might be just the perfect thing to stretch us and and to move us forward to becoming who we're meant to become and doing what we're meant to do now the question is this every situation we've used this each week in this series we need to ask the question you know so when we're asking Are these experiences, are these conditions that I'm undergoing now, if we ask, are they good for me, here's how we measure them, by this little grid. Whatever draws me closer to Christ, my creator, and moves me to live in accordance with his word, will, and ways, is good for me, whatever it is. It may initially be quite unpleasant, or it may be pleasant, but ultimately the test if something is good for me is, does it draw me closer to Christ, my creator, move me to live in accordance with his word, will, and ways? If it, if it does that, it's good for me because I'm now living in accordance with my design. On the other hand, whatever draws me away from Christ, my creator, it might seem initially good or not good, but if it draws me away and if it keeps me from living in accordance with his word, will, and ways, it's not good for me. I want to just ask you a question. Can, can, the, can the wrong choice of spending your time draw you away from Christ and living in accordance with his word, will, and ways? I mean, it might be an innocent choice of time. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you're not, not doing anything bad. You're just doing something that, for whatever reason, draws you away. You see, that, that's how we have to measure what's good for us, what's not good for us. It's not always clear. It's not always easy. It's not always on the surface. 
And it's all dependent on what our values are. Every one of us in here has a value system. And what I mean by values is this. There's something or some things that you and I all consider important. They matter. You know, we, we probably have a hierarchy if we ever checked it out on a piece of paper of what we consider is most important, what matters. And the question is this. Are my values based on a temporal view of life? Remember, temporal view of life. Hey, man, I'm just going to kind of live as, as long as I can and have as much fun as I can. That's temporal view of life. Or are my values based on eternal values? Some of the things we talk about, you've got to factor in judgment, you've got to factor in the return of Christ, you've got to factor in other angelic hierarchies, all, all sorts of things that I didn't have time to mention. Are my values temporal or eternal? Now listen to these verses as we, we look through people that had eternal values. Okay, Here's James, half-brother of Jesus, writing in the book of James. He says, my brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of what? Trials. Let, let's, let's play with that word. Trials. Um, inconveniences. Hardships. Problems. Things I don't like. They, they, they all fit under there. Health problems. Financial problems. Relational problems. Car problems. Anything. He says, count it all joy. I mean, is he some kind of a masochist? Is he crazy? Well, well why, James? Because you know that the testing of your faith, your trust in God, it produces endurance. Okay, I, I learn to be someone that's stable and steadfast and strong. I'm not pushed around by the circumstances. It urges me to endure until your testing is finished. Don't cave in, don't run, don't give up. Then, then, this is what it produces. So is it good for me if I endure? Then you will be, what is the word? Mature. You know, you know what it says elsewhere in Scripture in the book of Ephesians 4.15? What maturity is? It's I become just like Christ. I become that unique me, but a Christ-like version of me. That's what it means to be mature. I grow up and become the human being I was supposed to become. That's what these trials can bring to me. I don't like them. They don't feel good. But James says if I have an eternal value system, I understand they're going to do something to my character. They're going to catalyze some activity that's going to move me toward maturity. I'm going to be complete, and I won't need anything. That is, if I endure the testing. So that would mean that when that irritating circumstance comes into your life, and there will be one this week or my life, that will say, okay, I hate this, but this is a trial. And so I'm going I'm to figure out what, what, what would be God's way of me trying to handle this thing. I'm going to stay, stay faithful to him. I'm going to go through this thing. I'm going to do what needs to be done. And that says, if I do that, I'll, I'll develop in the right way so that trial that I didn't like, that I felt like wasn't good for me, can actually become good for me, depending on how I handle it. Let's look at another passage. Book of 2 Corinthians, and by the way, just for, for you that are interested in this sort of thing, if you read the chapter before this, 2 Corinthians 11, verse uh, 23 through like 30 or 32, the same guy writes this whole list of things that he personally had gone through in his first 20 years of following Christ. It's quite a list. But anyway, here's Paul, the apostle, God's number one servant on earth at that time in history, the writer of 13 books of the New Testament. And here's his circumstance. Here's the condition he was undergoing. So that I would not become too proud of the wonderful things that were shown to me. God was showing Paul all kinds of things because he wanted them preserved and passed down to humanity. So that I would not become too proud 
of the wonderful things that were shown to me, a painful problem, or excuse me, a painful physical problem was given to me. Thanks a lot for the painful physical problem. All right, let's go on. What was this problem? What, what was its source? This problem was a messenger from who? Sent to do what? Beat me, but why? To keep me from what? Being too proud. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Randy, you mean to tell me God, a loving God, is going to take me, Paul, who is being faithful to him, and is going to allow there to be some horrific physical pain, and the source of the pain is a dark angel, an evil angel, who is beating me, tormenting me physically, God is going to allow that to happen to me? He loves me and he's going to allow that to happen to me? You, you mean to tell me he's more concerned about my character than, than he is my comfort? That, that, that he's more concerned about me not being proud than he is about me being beaten up by some dark angelic force that causes excruciating physical pain? Is, is that what you're trying to tell me? Well, well let's go on. Look, look what he says in verse 8. No, 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 I'm sorry. I goofed you. That was my, my mistake. He says, I begged the Lord three times, take this problem away from me. How many of you have ever been in a situation, you've had a problem, it was, it was a real problem, and you begged God, you prayed, you were earnest, you begged God to take that problem away from you. How many have ever done that before? Let me see your hands. How many have ever done that before and God did not take the problem away? Can I see your hands? Uh It's not really foreign territory, is it? (laughs) But remember what it was about. God said, Paul, I don't want you to get proud. I want to be able to continue to use you, man. So I'm going to give you this gift of some excruciating physical pain. Even though it's brought to you by a dark source, I'm going to let it happen. I'm going to let this thing beat you. It goes on. But he said to me, after Paul begged him three times to get rid of it, my grace is enough for you. When you are weak, my power is made perfect in you. Paul's response, is it good for me to have this pain? Paul's response, so I'm very happy to brag about my weaknesses. Then Christ's power can live in me. For this reason, I'm happy when I have weaknesses and insults and what kind of times? And what kind of suffering, ooh, man, sufferings, and all kinds of what? For Christ. Because when I'm weak, then I'm truly strong. How many of you would have to acknowledge that when you are going through difficult times in life, your tendency is to, like Paul, really plead with God and beg God and stay close to him and, and uh you know, you're, you're in a more intensely dependent state on God when you're going through hard times. How many would agree that, that that is your tendency? Yeah. How many would also agree when life goes through those seasons, and thank, thankfully we have them where everything is sweet and smooth and easy breezy, we tend to drift a little bit away from God, not to be as intensely dependent and devoted to him. Can I see your hands on that? Yeah, isn't it terrible that way we are? But we are. So what's good for us? Is it good to have the sweet, smooth, easy, breezy seasons for too long? Or or is it really good for us to have the difficult seasons? Paul said, he concluded, it was better for him to have all kinds of hardships, all kinds of troubles, all kinds of insults. That one really hurts. 
All kind of disrespect. All kind of physical pain. Wait a minute, Randy. You mean to tell me you really think that God would allow one of his dear children to have physical pain, diseases, and we could beg him three times to heal that disease, to take away that physical pain, and he would not do that? What would you just read? There are a group of Christians today, and I'm calling them Christians, brothers, sisters in Christ, who are misled by false teachers. And these false teachers, and I'm sharing this with you because you're bound to hear this stuff sooner or later. These false teachers teach them that because God loves us, all we have to do anytime we have any sickness, any disease, is pray for healing, and we are guaranteed he's going to heal us completely and immediately. And if we don't get healed, it's only because we don't have enough faith. It's our fault if we don't get healed. Or it could be that we have secret sin. That's why we don't get healed. This is cruel. This is vicious. This is false teaching. The other thing that these teachers tend to teach is that If we exercise faith, we can literally control God, get him to give us anything that we want in this life. That God's highest goal in this life is to give us miracles like every day of our life and just like make us prosperous and wealthy and easy breezy and the ball always bounces in our direction. This is what they teach and it's very enticing. It's very seductive. God wants you prosperous. God wants you wealthy. If you have anything going on in your life you don't like, just rebuke it. Just command it to be cast into the sea. It's a mountain to be removed and so forth and so on. And yet it's all false teaching and what it does what's dark and sinister about it especially is that when a person when a believer when a faithful follower of Christ does go through a trial and a hardship they are deprived of the certainty that God is with them he is pleased with them he's never going to leave them and forsake them and as they go through the suffering the torture that they may choose to go through for the sake of a better resurrection we read these false teachers deprive them and literally tell them you're suffering because you don't have enough faith or you've got secret sin, and it's vicious, and it's cruel, and if you ever come across it, run from it as fast and as far as you can get, because I hope you've seen enough from Scripture that we can't always tell if something's good for us until we give it some time, and let's see what it does to us, or what we allow it to do to us. Let me go to one more. Paul says this, he says, for I consider that our present, there's that big bad word again, what is it? Sufferings. Sufferings are normative. Jesus said in John 16, 33, the last night he was with his disciples, he said, in this world, you are going to have suffering and hardship, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. Tim Keller, uh, writing in a book, he gives an example of of how our, our Vision of the future affects the way we feel in the present. And he gives this little example, this funny little example that I've shared before. Two women working at the exact same company, they're in an assembly line. All they do all day long, eight hours, they take something, they put it in a, in a box, and they pass it on. They take something, they put it in a box, pass it on. Eight hours a day, grueling, boring. Okay. But one woman does it, and she's buoyant, man. She's happy. She's whistling while she works. The other woman is just griping and grumbling all the time. This is so boring. This is so, what a lousy job. Well, what, what was the difference? What made the difference? Why was the one whistling while she worked? Why was she happy? Why was the other one griping and grumbling? Well, the first lady, the one that was griping and grumbling, she was promised when she took the job that at the end of a year, she would be given in one lump sum $30,000. Okay? So she's working every day. Boring routine, eight hours a day for $30,000. That's her future that she knows is coming. Why was the other woman whistling? Well, she was promised at the end of the year she would get $30 million. (laughs) 
Now there's a point here. You see, if I really believe that I'm going to be eternally rewarded for all faithfulness, then I can whistle while I go through whatever. And I'm not going to conclude that it's bad for me just because it's uncomfortable for me. It's only going to be bad for me if I become unfaithful to cooperating with God's ultimate purpose for me, which is to mold and shape me to become like Christ and to do those unique things in this world while I'm still breathing that he's called and equipped me to do and which I am able to respond to do or responsible to do. One last one, 2 Corinthians, it says this. Paul says, our momentary light suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison because we're not looking for what can be seen but what it cannot be seen for what can be seen is temporary but what cannot be seen is eternal. You know, you know what the sad truth for me is? I've watched people for a lot of years now in these kind of contexts. I mean, I've been a follower of Christ now for, I guess, 44 years. And um, I watch gifted, talented people loaded with potential waste their lives and never really become who they could have become and never really do what they were capable of doing. Spectacular things that would have changed the lives of so many. They, they just never do. And, and they go through life thinking their conditions and their experiences are bad when God meant them to be good and they think they're good when they're actually bad. And they go through life off balance, out of cue, usually pretty miserable all through the ride. Don't let that be you. Don't, don't be that person. Now I want to close with a, a one minute and 47 second clip of someone. And um, I'll fill in a little bit more about this person after we watch the clip, but let's look at it. All right, Johnny, let me come back to you now, okay? The question is this, after 45 years of being in that wheelchair and all this pain and all of this suffering, okay, and you've prayed and you've gone to the healing meetings and all of this, what's your conclusion about will God heal everybody who asks in faith? And you're right, John, I went to so many healing services after I got out of the hospital not just Kath and Coleman, but little Episcopal churches that would have Tuesday night healing services. I'd be there. I'd get anointed with oil. I'd confess sin. I'd be wheeled up front. Everything, every scriptural injunction, but God never healed. Oh, Jesus. You were so wise in not giving me an answer to that request for a physical healing because what you have done is so much greater. You've given me a, a love of prayer. You've given me a buoyant, happy hope of heaven. You've given me such a, a deep relationship with my husband. You, you've, you've fostered sensitivity toward other people who hurt. You've caused me to hate sin in my life. You, you've gotten me deep into your word. You, you've just done so much more than I ever dreamed possible. There really is more to life than just walking and being pain-free or cancer-free or having use of your hands. And you have shown me, Lord God, what the real healing is all about. Took me all the way to the pool of Bethesda in Israel, that I could tell him that, that I could say to Jesus, thank you. Because a, 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 a no to a request for physical healing meant yes to so many, so many far greater things. Can you accept that teaching today? A no to physical healing meant yes to so many more greater things. By the way, her greater things, uh, she's been a uh, paraplegic since she was 17 years old, was a Christ follower at 17, jumped into Chesapeake Bay, broke her neck, been paralyzed ever since, learned to paint brilliantly with her teeth, has written over 50 Christian books. Her book on heaven is probably the best I've ever read. 
She has a ministry that has touched millions, not just thousands, millions of people all around the world for the cause of Christ, helping people that go through all kinds of circumstances. And I will say that I don't believe any of that would have happened had she been instantly healed the way she wanted to. Was her crippling accident good for her? Or would a healing been good for her? Well, we all have to answer those questions. So, is it possible that some of us here, we've, we've had a bad set of glasses on that we've been looking through life and answering that question, is this good for me or not good for me? Is this experience, is this condition good for me? Maybe we need to put the lens of divine revelation on and start looking at life through that eternal perspective. Let me leave you with this thought. Interpret experiences through the lens of divine revelation. It's the only trustworthy way. And you'll find yourself saying that an awful lot of things that you thought initially were not good for you, you'll say, this is good for me. And a lot of things that you thought initially were good for you, you'll start saying, that really was not good for me. Let's pray. Father, give us wisdom and strength to embrace your eternal perspective, to live lives to the fullest, to your honor, to your glory, to our good and the good of all those near us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.